APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to James Lenve about AI in education, the arts, and the future of work. Welcome, James. Hello, Bjorn. Thanks for uh, having me. Another session here. Topical discussions. Yeah, definitely. No, this is extraordinarily important. There's a lot of podcasts coming out about AI. I think there's a lot of confusion, honestly. It'll take a few years for AI to mature and for people to grasp AI and how it's going to impact them. But uh, the first question I have for you is, what are some of the challenges that have presented themselves recently in education in relation to AI? I did want to kind of just follow up on what you said there quickly to kind of start off and just give a sort of a general overview to my understanding. Now, I'm not an expert in the technology of AI here. So what I've been seeing in, in my work in education here is some of these tools like ChatGPT and how they're being used by students to, you know, either create seemingly original work or do different functions like paraphrasing perhaps or helping with language. But this is really a new sort of phenomena. This stuff just came on the scene recently and it's been what, maybe six months since JetGPT was released. And one of the things that got me thinking about this was just seeing a, my friend's son using this Genie app about uh, six months ago to answer a question that he could not come up with an answer for. So immediately went to the phone and said, okay, Genie, solve this problem for me. And I was really taken aback by that. And it, it, it produced a beautiful answer. And I thought, well, you know, this is really going to be transformative, I think. And then now it's starting to trickle into education and especially the work we do in, in online education. The number one thing that our students have to do, and we ourselves, is we have to learn and then we have to create information. But then what happens when an AI is creating it for you? So what do you do with that? Is that step one in learning? Because if you just take that information and then just use it, that's not your own. So that's an issue. Right. We've been talking a lot about how this comes into play in terms of what we call academic dishonesty. It's really not plagiarism for a student to type in a question into ChatGPT and then just copy and paste the answer because it's not really something that was published by somebody. And then they're just taking somebody's words and passing it off as their own, but they are taking some things words and passing it off as their own. And so there is that dishonesty element. And one of the things that's kind of come up is it seems as though anything that is generated by something other than the student would seem like academic dishonesty. But what I've seen that kind of surprised me, and I guess I should have maybe seen it coming, is that some students are using programs like Grammarly or Quillbot to help improve their writing, but not necessarily writing it for them. So we use this, a system called Turnitin, which will run a student's work against a whole library of, of work to find out if there's enough matching content to say that, okay, this was probably plagiarized. It gives a percentage report. And now Turnitin has added an AI detecting function. I don't know how well that works, but it has produced several 100% matches. So now we're kind of going back to students and saying, okay, can maybe you try to explain why we have a 100% match here on the AI? We don't want to make any assumptions. And then some students are saying, well, you know, I'm using some of these apps to help because I'm not really confident in my English or I want to clean it up a little bit. And that seems like a, a fair use, especially I think for somebody who maybe is not 
a native speaker of English or it's their second language, I can understand why somebody would want to do that. But we also have to kind of back up and think if a lot of the work we're doing, especially in humanities, is to teach writing, this just really nullifies that whole process. Um, and the same with, to some extent, the critical thinking skills that we want to build as well. It's extraordinarily confusing. Like, you know, when I think of literacy in the U.S. and many Western countries and in other countries, literacy rates are like near universal. But adult literacy, more difficult concepts or problem solver or critical thinking, that's when we start seeing it go down because a lot of people have a hard time. Critical thinking is hard. Problem solving is difficult. It is extremely, you know, information literacy is difficult. And then if you have a student or a group of students that then start using AI as step one of their research, which is, again, it's fine if you're using it as a, a part of your process that you're still going to then use and edit and make your own. But if students then just use step one as their only step, then they will never develop their critical thinking and they won't develop their writing. So, you know, I think AI is then adding another complexity to the contemporary world. As humans, it takes us a very long time to develop, but what will happen when that difficult, painful development period is kind of cut out? How many people will develop? Yeah, I think there's two parts to the critical thinking aspect. Now, the writing element is really interesting because if AI is going to take over a lot of our writing functions, then the question is, does it need to be taught? And that's kind of an interesting concern on its own, right? The students are going to say, well, look, I'm not going to do much writing in my profession and any writing there is to do is going to be done by AI. So why do I have to bother learning how to write well? You know, a lot of people have been making this analogy to other kinds of tools that have come out, especially calculators, right? So the years ago, right, it was students shouldn't be using calculators. They won't learn how to do math. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, calculators are just ubiquitous for our, you know, smaller tasks, especially. But one question I have is whether this is really a tool or if it's something different. And if it's not being used to just kind of supplement or help, but in fact, take the place of, and especially, right, that's what the whole idea of generative AI is. It's that it's creating something. And yes, it can, I think, be used as a sort of assistant, but I think it also can be used to do much more than that. And that's where people really seem to be legitimately concerned so what are some questions that people are asking about AI in the arts and entertainment sector? You know, that ties, I think, to a question that I've had, and I've been posing this to students recently, is what does something mean to be authentic? So if we're talking about authentic art, if something looks really beautiful, but it's a fake Picasso, does it matter? It looks nice. It's beautiful, mounted on my wall. Who cares who painted it, right? Uh, and the same thing with music. We've been doing this for a long time as well. Technologies relatively recently that improve a singer's performance. Okay, so is that really the authentic voice that I'm hearing? And does that even matter? Lip syncing has been used for years on stage. I'm not getting a real performance. So these questions about what we take as real and whether we care about that and, and what authenticity means and how that plays into all this is really interesting. It is. Art is tough because like artists have been copying for well, forever. <laughs> you know, you can go super nerdy and go way back to the Renaissance and the Middle Ages where composers would literally lift entire pieces and drop them in theirs and then hide them a bit. But today with copyright laws, you know, what does it mean to be original? Because AI that creates art is still copying existing art in some way. So then is it original? And is that original person getting credit, which is typically no? Yeah, I think two things there. 
it just came to mind there was this recent case with uh, Ed Sheeran, I think, who had that copyright lawsuit. And you know, it was great. He brought his guitar up to the <laughs> into court to show that, you know, there's so many songs that are very similar. What are you going to do? There's only so many options in terms of creating a song. And some of them are going to sound a little bit the same. And I was even reading earlier today, Reuters published an article about what we're going to do in terms of regulations with AI. And copyright is one of those issues. Music is difficult because in a scale, there's seven notes, if you don't include the chromatic notes. And then, you know, you go up and down like two octaves and you essentially have 21 notes to deal with maybe 28 if you use four octaves. And we've been using those same notes for 500 years. And it's amazing how today Ed Sheeran is using the same notes as Bach, who's using the same notes as Monteverdi, as Beethoven, as Rachmaninoff. You know, you go on and on. We've All Western music has been using the same structure for such a long time. But then there's also people who will try to copyright little elements. And then if somebody uses it, they're like, nope, nope, that's mine. And it's a universal element. And so that's why like with AI, it is difficult because with words, there's only so many letters, but there's an infinite number of combinations. You can put those, you know, letters into words. You know, I could see AI just writing all your basic articles. Who needs a human when an AI can just spit out an article? Doesn't require a lot of detailed thought and editor just runs through it and you publish it. I was sharing this these last couple of weeks, this article that I found, um, it was published by Vanity Fair. And it was really interesting because it set up the scenario where, you know, you come home from work and you can just maybe speak into Siri or whatever and say, look, I want to watch a TV show in the style of Seinfeld and, you know, or whatever movie. And I want it to have this kind of soundtrack and it'll just build that for you almost on demand. And I don't know if that's a realistic expectation for AI, but that would be really interesting. And then uh, later in the article said, if you don't think that that's possible, just consider where we are with entertainment these days. You know, what does it take to build one of these Marvel scripts? So it doesn't seem like it's really beyond the capacity of what AI can either do now or will do. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That right there is something not today, but in 10 years or even 20 years, I could definitely see that coming up. And so today we're speaking with James Lenvey about AI in education and the arts and the future of work. And we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe quality education must be more affordable. That's why as a leader in online higher education, we focus on minimizing costs and maximizing return on learner investment. And we believe higher education must be more accessible. So our online programs start every month. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with James Lenvey. The last question, James, for our conversation about AI is, what are some of the questions going forward about impacts to the workforce? So it ties, I think, to some of the things we've talked about already, whether or not AI is a tool or if it's something else, if it's going to replace people altogether. Years ago, decades ago, this was a concern where People said, look, robots, robotics are going to take over manufacturing jobs. And what are people going to do? And there was kind of a similar question where were robots, are they tools? Well, in that case, yes, I think they were replacing people's physical actions, but they were tools for automakers, right? So we have a new tool and you can go home. We're going to have a robot do this for us now. 
And there's been also a lot of talk about this in philosophical circles going back a long time, 20, 30 years. Uh, David Chalmers is a famous philosopher who works in philosophy of mind, and he's talked a lot about this idea of offloading work from our minds to what he calls an extended mind. And so we've done this with calculators we mentioned. He uses a really interesting analogy with just a pen and a piece of paper or a notebook. And we use that to write down or a calendar. We use that to enhance our memory. And those are tools, but those aren't doing thinking for us in the way that AI seems to be. So I really am not sure about the analogies that people are making to saying this is a tool just like other tools and how those are then going to be used to supplement what we do in the workforce or in a lot of ways, maybe just replace us. You've probably seen in the news, there was a writer or is a writer's strike in Hollywood. And I don't know all the details, but I, I know one of the sticking points was that have to build in some kind of protection so that AI would not take over the jobs of the writers. And so our, who, who knows if writers are even using AI and just saying, okay, I just produced an original script. <laughs> you would never know. So, you know, they're doing uh, what they're saying is a month's worth of work in five minutes. So there's a lot of interesting concerns there. And the same thing, actually, I, I wanted to mention earlier, a lot of people have somewhat jokingly said, well, if students are going to be using AI to produce their work, then as educators and teachers, we'll just use AI to grade their work. And in a way, that was kind of a little bit of a running joke for a while. But actually, I think that it's not just a joke or just some kind of whimsical thing. There's been a lot of talk recently about using AI to help grade work, to automate it. AI can look at a student's writing and say, hey, maybe you ought to shorten some of your sentences or you know, your thesis could work better this way. And so that takes a lot of work offloading some of that cognitive work. But at some point, what are we going to need to do if AI can do all of the functions that we do? That's going to be a real, a real concern. It's even hard to know where to start. It's like, well, let's do parts one through 50 on our analysis and predictions. As far as a workforce, you know, it, it makes me think, and, and this is my own personal opinion. So I just had to put that out there first. I tried to watch some of Lord of the Rings on Amazon. And then I've been watching some of um, The Citadel on Amazon. And so the scripts that those two shows have used and the plot points are just, if an AI wrote them, I'd be like, yeah, that totally made sense. But I'm assuming a human wrote them. And especially with Lord of the Rings, it's just, I shrug my shoulder. I'm like, this isn't anything original. Again, I'm being highly critical here. But there's nothing compelling about the progress of that show that made me really believe and want to be engaged. And then with The Citadel, it's, I like the actors, but all the plot points are just so, well, of course, of course, this is what was going to happen. And then you think, well, it's going to happen next in your typical James Bondish type thing or, uh, well, and then it happened, you know, so it's like, there's a lot of very mediocre art out there that this sounds terrible. AI can fill the void and be cheaper. Yeah, right. I mean, it, that's always been a concern. Okay, your art, your music, it's formulaic. And that's exactly what AI does. It's it's following sort of a formula that it's collected, to my understanding, from all this data and just pushing out whatever you want it to, a script or, or anything else. But again, that really just mirrors what we do anyway. We just take in our influences and our experiences and spit out whatever work we want. But it's almost like it's fundamentally the same thing. I mean, I could see it writing every sitcom moving forward. I mean, a sitcom doesn't have to be 
brilliant stuff. But you know, you you read all the sitcoms, you know, and you watch them, and they're like, eh, it's okay. There's something about certain sitcoms that are good. Or Two and a Half Men. To me, there's very little redeeming about that. Anybody could have written that, and anybody could have honestly acted in that. Uh, well, I really like Two and a Half Men, but um, full disclosure. But I think take something like Seinfeld. Oh yeah. Okay, there is so much in there that just gets at our foibles and our little problems. And I just, I'm not sure AI, at least right now, could even come close to mimicking something like that. So maybe that's just a case of AI can do okay work if you're okay with that, but it's not going to do really great work, at least not right now. So as far as humans go, where do humans go anyways? Because in the arts, we've reached a point to where a blank white canvas is a very famous piece of art or an all black canvas or a textured art, whatever is now art. And it's like, well, it is, it's more performance art, but it's still art. So then AI is mimicking everything. Art has always been something where you need a little context. Okay, what is the artist going after? And then once you know that, you can say, okay, now I see where they came from. Now this makes sense. But whatever's built in the motivation to make the art is seems like it would be uniquely human, right? Some struggle, some problem that I had that I wanted to express in art. And what does that do? How does that affect what we call good art? And maybe that's where AI could never really replicate the experience that we have of making art. No, it's true. And I think a lot of AI will create a lot of art and people will like it and consume it. And then others will, will not, rightfully so, because art criticism, you know, I have an entire podcast on the aesthetics of art. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and there is no good art. There is no bad art. There is just art. Absolutely wonderful conversation. Any final words, James? Well, the only thing that maybe to tie back with education and the workforce, I think it'll be really interesting going forward to see how, you know, how, how the needs are going to be met for people staying employed, doing especially creative work, and then what kind of job training we're going to need or want to provide to people in, you know, in higher education. So a lot of people are optimistic and saying, well, this just presents some challenges and maybe it'll, there'll be ways that we can make AI again, a useful tool. And then of course there's the other side saying, well, okay, this is the end of everything we know and, or the beginning of the end of everything we know. And uh, I think some of that remains to be seen, but very interesting philosophical questions here for sure. So for me, if nothing else right now, this gives me fodder to talk about my courses. So I'm optimistic in that sense, at least for the short term. Definitely. And I completely agree. And so absolutely wonderful conversation. And today we're talking to James Lenvey about AI in education, the arts, and the future of work. My name is Dr. Bira Mercer, and thanks for listening. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.